Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome back, friends. Can you believe it's almost September already? The kids are getting ready to go back to school. The Halloween stores are opening up. Where did the summer go? Hell, it's only 107 degrees today. I gotta dig out my winter coat. Come on in for a dip, he says. Chester, you ain't even the scariest thing in that bog. I'll take a hard pass, thank you. I wouldn't even dip my worst enemy in there. And to think, Jiry was waiting around in that shit a few months back. Well, come on in, friend. Let's get down to business. Hmm. Alright. That's better. So tonight, we've got two tales of buried secrets and untimely pitfalls. So smoke them if you got them and drink them to the bottom, friends. Cause old Drew Blood has a tale to tell. Oh, hey. I didn't see you there. You know, Drew Blood's Dark Tales is only one of the many shows on this network you could be listening to. We hope you'll subscribe to our entire lineup, including Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, Fear from the Heartland, and Horror Hill. All available on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. Also, visit simplyscarypodcast.com to become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you get our entire catalog ad-free and available to download or stream. A bargain. And now, back to the show. For our first tale tonight, we join a man whose father was killed during an expedition, but suspects there are other secrets buried along with them. From author Jonathan Lowe, Missing Link. Fully three months had passed since Dr. Alfred Ritter's accident in the Himalayas before his son Carl caught up with Dr. Carson Zwaney. 
Zwaney was on the lecture circuit back in America then, and a very theatrical performer for a scientist, but certainly not the most famous member of the Piltdown research team, nor the recipient of the Academy of Sciences Lifetime Achievement Award. Since neither Dr. Ritter's nor the three other bodies had been recovered from that pinnacle of rock and snow in Nepal, Carl had decided to attend one of Zwaney's lectures anonymously to see if he could detect any discrepancy in the story. As he waited, Ritter looked around him with amusement at the sand crabs with their distinctive claw hats. Here was another visitor about to pour forth bogus delicacies from his presumed cornucopia of summer bastons in the Hawaiian sands, late-night trysts in Venetian gondolas, and musical romps in Spanish haciendas, and to a metropolitanized group of armchair adventurers, their imaginations ravenous for such wanderings. And for all they knew, Ritter mused, the old boy could have worked as head librarian with an avocation for perusing the back issues of the National Geographic. Only Zweeney's hands gave him away as he gripped a podium he stood behind, tall, enthusiastic, a gadfly above hermit crabs, a small thing. But if anything told a man's history, it was his hands, and Zweeney's hands told at least that he had never been employed sorting books or writing ad copy. Carl could not unfix his gaze from those large, hairy, dingy-nailed masterpieces which clung to either side of the podium like steel-springed bear traps. After a lengthy intro, Zweeney began his tale in a raspy baritone. Picture us then as an expedition, five in all, climbing and struggling under the heavy burden of our line, spikes and grappling hooks. Up, up into the thin, frigid ozone, attempting to scale the hazardous sheer face above the point where the Yeti's tracks had been seen. Then I slipped, and my safety spike shot out above and below. Zweeney paused, gesticulating. It was a tragedy, of course. Clawing rock and snow, we slid down into a hidden ravine, into a hole. Trapped in a narrow tunnel of perpetual ice on the steep slope near the summit, where it was necessary for us to occasionally breathe the oxygen mixture we carried in slender silver tanks. My pocket altimeter before I fell read close to 19,000 feet. And as we tried to escape our icy bonds, the whole circle of snow around us cracked. I pulled up desperately, edging my shoulders over the remaining crust. But just before my hips could emerge, the entire circlet of debris gave way and collapsed, pulling the others down into the depths and smothering them under several tons of ice and rock. Exhausted, I fell in after them and blacked out. When I woke, the snow and ice was piled around me, and I had to push free in order to stare up at the cold light of the sun, enthralled. It was different this sun. Maybe it was the height, the thinner atmosphere, or the fear seeping into my jarred brain. But it was as if this cool, refulgent orb above me were another star like you see at night. A pinprick of light come close. Alien. As if the sun were in another stage of its life. An earlier stage. 
<laughs> I laughed a humorless hollow laugh and looked around. It was a cave into which I'd fallen to be sure. Not an ordinary shallow cave though, but a deep cave boring horizontally into the core of the mountain. It had the smell you'd sniff in an old defrosting freezer. The kind of smell that lingers in your memory and comes back to you in a fever dream. I peered back into the darkness and it felt... It felt like the darkness peered back at me. Hmm. I picked up my gear and fumbled in it for an oxygen-assisted butane lighter, which I lit. A tiny tear of flame emitted. I adjusted it. The tear rose to a taper. I pulled my spiked heels free of the snow then and tread the melting crust past the cave-in and deeper into the cave's throat. Here's when he paused and lowered his voice to a hoarse whisper. The walls were glassy, reflective. I could see my own inquisitive face matted with a stubble I'd felt unnecessary to shave. As I went on, the walls widened, the ceiling rose, back, back they went, and higher and higher. At last, I stood inside a large cathedral-like vault, walled in glassy sheets of ice dripping. As I trudged around, staring into the far shadows cast over the walls by the faint ribbon of flame which glimmered over the outcroppings of rock, it occurred to me that I was the first human ever to witness this ice mirror maze dug out of a solid rock over how many ages? I stood for a long time contemplating the cavern in awe when my gaze wandered downward toward my feet. Instantly a breeze blew, extinguishing my lighter. A strong breeze out of nowhere. I stood in total darkness, my pulse racing, a fast metronome battering my temples. I'd never been afraid of the dark in my life, but now... With that monstrosity and a melting flow of ice beneath my feet, I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. Seconds ticked off like birthday bells toward eternity. One for each age that thing I'd seen had lain in its icy crypt, eyes wide, all hair, all muscle, all jagged tooth and angular bone. Question... What had I seen? Answer. I'd seen Bigfoot. The abominable snowman. Goliath Frankenstein. I'd seen the essence of nightmare. In one flickering second of oxidizing butane, I'd seen a thing which could not be, and yet, somehow was. A caveman frozen in ice. Into the stretch, Sweeney produced an odd silver lighter from his pocket and flicked it to life. I lit this lighter again, he said, nervously now, afraid to look. High in the Himalayas, in a hidden cavern, in a hidden ravine, on an infrequently climbed mountain face all under a broken blanket of ice which had covered it since time immemorial. Had we indeed intruded? 
bringing with us a first breath of outside air? Was this stagnant air with its strange hoary scent the same breathed by Pliocene man? And did advancing ice age miraculously capture a sleeping specimen from that age, locking him for eons in a coffin of ice? I lit my lighter. I discovered that the answer was yes. Zweeney looked out over the stare in silence, waited an appropriate ten or twelve seconds, and then added, I rushed from there, leaving my gear in my haste. I made my descent to the village in just under three hours. You can imagine their utter surprise when I told them my story. We got busy getting up a party to make a return to the cave, but we were struck by a freak snowstorm. After the storm and the late morning of the next day, need I say that we didn't find that ravine, that cave, or the frozen ape man within. The snow and ice lay a white blanket over all. Since then, I've made my ascent up the north slope of the mountain two times alone without success. I slipped deliberately. I slid. I nearly skied off that sheer face skiless, but it was no use. The man in the mountain remained the man in the mountain, and almost as old as the mountain itself. My only consolation remains the knowledge that should anyone discover the cave again, they will also discover a length of rope, a grappling hook, and an oxygen cylinder with my name on it. Perhaps then I will share in a discovery which will surely rock the world. Again, tragedy, the terrible accident was mentioned, and that the other's deaths had not been totally in vain. A question period followed, but Ritter waited, preferring a one-on-one -on -one confrontation. When the time was right, he elbowed his way across the room toward the guest speaker, a quizzical smile on his lips and on his mind. Sir? Yes. Zweeney was sly. Closer you could see it there behind the sky-blue eyes. It was all a good act. Monetary rewards weren't great, but Zweeney was already rich, and there was the popularity to consider, and nothing made a man popular like controversy. Ritter's smile widened. Where would it be next, he wondered. The lions? The elks? The ladies' auxiliary? I was just wondering, Mr. Zweeney, Ritter asked, why no one has found the cave in the mountain. They searched for several weeks after you left, you know. Using the expedition map, you said, was followed explicitly. Zweeney produced a pack of filtered players from his shirt pocket, his odd lighter. I know, he said coolly, lighting up. In the Himalayas, it's hard to backtrack with accuracy. Lots of climbers have been lost over the years. They fall into a crevice and become fossils. As a matter of fact, I heard of one fellow who was lost back in 1948. They found his body frozen solid but in perfect condition just last year. Is that so? Something like a mild animosity flickered there in Zweeney's eyes, cold and blue. Do you doubt it, Mr. Bennett? Tom Bennett? Yes, and I think it's mighty strange, your story and you're coming back here and grabbing all the credit for a presumed find. 
For instance, what about the Melton? What about it? How can it be? You mean in the cave? Zweeney's eyes swam, glinting scales under the low ceiling light. Well, you see, I let in the sun. The wind and the cave had been sealed up for a millennia. Plus, the air had an unusually high chill factor that day. I see, said Ritter. Zweeney was no insect about to be pinned and watched wiggling. When someone behind him asked a trifle, he whirled away from Ritter with no audible sigh of relief. But Ritter waited for him outside just the same. Zweeney? Alone, Zweeney turned, fumbling for his car keys. His tone was glacial. You again? Interested, said Ritter. Oh, <laughs> he laughed. In what, cavemen? Not that so much. I didn't think so. In what, then? In why you do it, and why you go around with your sham story. What is it, the prestige and being talked about or laughed at? And why here, to a bunch of Lodge brothers instead of the Academy of Science? Or the Society of Anthropological Research? Ritter felt his face flush, but there was no reason for it. Accidents did happen, didn't they? There were risks. You wouldn't want to know, said Zweeney suddenly. You wouldn't understand. The night sky was quiet. The wind rustled in a distant autumn tree. Wouldn't I, Ritter said as calmly as he could manage. Is it because you've come up with theories like this before? With theories that were quickly disproven? Zweeney didn't answer, but only stared, his eyes suddenly brighter. After a moment, he got in his car, slammed the door, and rolled down the window. You're not married, are you, Mr. Bennett? No. Are you? No, I'm not. But maybe a wife could have explained it to you. He started the engine. Ritter pointed with his finger. You explain it to me. Just admit it, that's all I ask. You're a second-rate scientist covering from a tragedy that you caused and making a buck on it besides. And what I want to know is, what happened to the bodies? A long, tremulous moment hung in balance. It could have gone either way. All right, Zweeney said with finality. If you're sure you want to know the truth, get in. They drove through the late night streets. A newspaper skidded across the field of the headlights under a gust of cool air to drape a sidewalk. Where are we going? said Ritter stiffly after a few minutes. You said you wanted to know why I do these lectures, Zweeney replied tonelessly. So we're going to my house. That isn't necessary. Isn't it? The house was big, two-storied, but looked oddly new. It nestled against a pine tree which rose behind it, swaying. They got out and tread a stony path. Kind of out of the way, said Ritter. Agreed. Zweeney whistled an obscure tune. Burned ten years ago, most of it. Had my folks in it. I just recently got around to rebuilding. As much like the original as I could. They went inside. The door closed behind with a thick wooden thud. 
They stood on a parquet floor, staring up at an ancient crystal chandelier. Care for a drink? Forget that, Ritter replied. Tell me about why you... Why I lie like I do, Sweeney finished. Ritter felt a seizure tighten his gut. Yes, he said, breaking clean. Why you lie? The house creaked once. Branches from the pine whipped, whipped against attic rooms. Zweeney said, follow me and I'll show you. Ritter followed the tall man, followed his pointed hawk-like nose through the hall, through the kitchen, past the pantry to a short heavy door where they had to bend down to descend to the cellar below. Ten, fifteen steps down, down into the darkness, apprehensively with a pungent smell in his nostrils that Ritter could not place. Zweeney's voice whispering apologetically all the way down the invisible steps. I lied about the sun and the wind. I lied about a lot of things. Everywhere I go, I lie now. Do you understand? I'm beginning to said Ritter, thinking of his father lying there under a ton of ice far, far away. I lie because I have to be careful. It's hard to lie to scientists. Naturally, said Ritter. It's hard to lie to someone who expects you to be completely serious. Like me, Ritter said, feeling his way down. Yeah. He turned and slapped Ritter's shoulder, making him jump. That's not what I mean. The time isn't right. Not yet. Not for years. And they wouldn't understand that, would they? What do you mean? The timing, said Zweeney. It isn't right. People aren't ready. Don't you see? I see, said Ritter, but he didn't. We built a fire in that cave to keep warm. Oh, there was a cave, by the way, and it hurt my ankle badly. Anyway, it was a small fire, kept burning with paper wrappers, my backpack, and the oxygen from one of our cylinders. That's why I left some of my gear in the cave, too. I came back later and built bigger fires. You're telling me? I'm saying I've got to think of the people, Mr. Ritter, Zweeney replied evenly. Take, for instance, the church. The... That's right. Well, you're catching on. You know, your father bragged about you, and even showed me your picture once. I figured you'd show up sooner or later. As for your father and the others, no, it wasn't really an accident, I'm afraid to say. I had a gun in my pack, actually. I'd been his partner for a long time, with him claiming credit for everything. It was that way even on this project. But this find, well, it was too big to share. I saw your father's eyes widen when I showed it to him, and I saw the headlines in my mind's eye too. So I used this gun, the one I'm holding right now. As for the bodies... Ritter took in a deep breath and held it. Now he recognized the scent the odor pervading the black room. It smelled like a zoo. I'm teaching it to speak. Zweeney's voice came up from below. I figured I'd go for that added effect when it comes time. 
since it passes so well for a large male gorilla. He stopped moving or talking then, at the bottom of the stair. Ritter listened, his mouth suddenly dry. Had a chain just rattled? It couldn't be. Zweeney's bulk moved close to him, his shoulder gripped from behind. Then Zweeney slipped something into Ritter's own hand. Ritter felt it, felt its odd shape as Zweeney nudged him forward. The lighter. Go on now, Zweeney whispered hotly as cold steel touched the back of his neck. You know, it just loves all sorts of raw meat. <laughs> And that was Missing Link by author Jonathan Lowe. A good reminder that the incentives for recognition are not conducive to scientific progress. Also, never thaw your meat at room temperature. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. For our second story tonight, we join a man who put down his motorcycle in just the wrong place. It happens. So again, from author Jonathan Lowe, I give you a helping hand for the Harley man. It happened fast. Josh Alford's new heritage softtail had just topped 60 miles per hour on the old Sonoida Highway south of Tucson when a stray cow decided to cross the road 50 yards ahead. Hearing the intermittent slide of wheels on dirt, the huge spotted heifer stopped in the middle of the narrow span and turned toward the approaching motorcycle. With a look of terror, it tried to bolt forward, but not fast enough to prevent the left crash bar of the Harley from swapping its rear flank. Braying in pain, its muscle pulled and gashed, the animal hobbled headlong into the low thickets of creosote, which had been its destination. For the motorcycle's part, the encounter had destroyed any final attempt at tracking, causing a total loss of stability. So, at the end of a forty-yard stretch of tire tracks, and after two distinct slidings and corrections, the tracks became a swath of dirt, as if a plow had gone through. 
A furrow dug by the protruding crumb along the center of the disturbance pointed like an arrow toward the wreck at the base of a Palo Verde tree beyond. There, beside the twisted front end of the bike, lay Josh, face down, unmoving. The Harley's engine grunted twice more and died as silence returned to the desert. After a moment, there was a twitch in Josh's left hand. Fingers fingered the air. Finally, his head turned and his eyes opened to stare back at the place where the cow had vanished. Not a sign of movement or even a solitary moo of protest or pain. The only clue to the incident was that fishtailing track he had made in breaking down to 30 and the sick wobble and slide as he went down after contact. The damned beast had appeared suddenly and just as suddenly disappeared probably to lick its leg wound or chew its cud. Maybe Josh was already forgotten. He sat up and felt himself. Nothing seemed broken. Yet if he had gone forward another five feet and hadn't braked, the story might have been different. The Palo Verde might have ended him. As it was, he was lucky. A sandy sidewash balanced the ledger that his foolhardy recklessness waited on the other side. He cursed and stood to his feet, surveying his downed bike at last. Only four hours ago it had been in the showroom as pretty as a magazine layout. Now, with just under a hundred miles on the odometer and heaps of dirt glutting its once shiny engine fins, it had a twisted fender, a collapsed crash bar, and a bent clutch lever. What would Allison say, he wondered. Probably the same thing she already had except this time she'd have her mother join in the chorus. A dirge or ditty of I told you so's. What a fool to ride it down a dirt road at such speed. He knelt beside the bike and tried to lift it, but couldn't. He strained, this time succeeding in lifting it two inches off the ground. Suddenly he remembered something the salesman had muttered about its weight versus his own. One thing, partner. The man had almost whispered after the deal was done. You ain't big, and this bike, it's, well, heavy. So if God forbid you ever drop it out in the yard or something, you may need some help getting it up. Heavy? He had sensed that, especially at low speed. It was, after all, a big bike for a little guy. But it was a beauty and could hit a hundred and twenty on the highway with a ride that bellowed freedom like an iron stallion. Enough power to stay ahead of those tailgaters who'd ridden the bumper of his smoking Dotson all the way to his retail job selling evaporative coolers while his wife pecked and his mother-in-law plain old hen pecked. Enough power to weave around those zeros, as he called them. Those impatient fools with zero tolerance on their way to some singles bar or ball game. The enemy. He looked both ways along old Sonoida Highway and frowned. This old dirt road was good for nothing since they had paved Highway 83 somewhere to the west. No reason for traffic to use it anymore. People in a hurry to get to Sonoida and the cooler temps there would use 83. It was a straighter shot. No curves and dips and no gravel to chip your windshield. What made this a great motorcycling road for maybe a BMW GS made it as damn foolish for his dream machine as it was for retirees and their lumbering Winnebago's. 
A rancher. That was his best bet. He spotted a side road ahead, like a driveway beside a sign which read Open Range. After setting the gas petcock to off, he took his Harley's keys and set off at a brisk pace. The narrow driveway rose up and over a hill as he walked quickly along it. Near the summit he glanced back, already half expecting someone to be hoisting his hog into a pickup truck with a block and tackle. Would it be stolen before he could make the first payment? He had already had his first wreck, and Allison and her mother hadn't even figured out his can't-afford-a-baby-now excuse yet. They were still busy learning the old Dotson's quirks, like that sudden pull to the left when the brakes were applied sharply, or how the odometer made a foreboding clicking sound now that it had turned over the big numbers, with all those zeros staring like eyes. He noticed the dirt drive was cleared in places at the top of the hill to reveal a paved surface beneath. Odd, he thought, a paved driveway leading from a dirt main road. He stopped and looked down at a strange round building half hidden beside a sloping hill of sand. Not a ranch house, certainly, but what? He couldn't see any doors or windows in the edifice, which was like a circular ball rising from a mound of dirt. The top half of a rectangular building was just visible beyond it. So here were two house-sized structures, covered in some kind of dull metal, half buried in the middle of nowhere. Spaceships? He moved closer. Metal, yes, but with holes in a few places with concrete showing in the holes. Marks like scrapes indented the metal, too, in places. So only the surface was metal. Beneath was concrete, as whoever had tried to get inside had discovered. And beneath the concrete? What? He climbed up on top of the round building from the back, where the sloping earth gave access. It was a perfect ball, half buried and still no indication of any door or hatch. What could it? He laughed at himself as it came to him. He even remembered reading about these sites in the paper a few years back. Sure, it was an old Titan missile base, abandoned by the military back in the mid-70s when it became obsolete. There were a dozen sites like this out in the desert surrounding Tucson, and they'd been sealed in concrete for years. Their warheads long removed and dismembered at Davis Monthan Air Force Base just south of town. He climbed down and paused, thinking he heard something, like a click. He cocked his head, listening. Now what? There it was again, distinct but distant. Was it coming from the silo? He put his ear against the rough metallic surface. Nothing. His imagination, most likely. He looked up and saw the frayed end of a broken cable protruding from a hole in the metal hide above him. Then suddenly another click. He tried to imagine what might cause such a sound. Heat expansion on the metal? A fissure in the concrete? Or a ratchet pulley lifting a heritage onto a flatbed truck? He ran up the hill. At the summit, breathless, he looked down at the lifeless stretch of dirt road beyond. In the ditch along it, he could see his beloved hog stretched out on its side as if in pain, a still life of candy red against the gray dirt. 
like one of them damned Hell's Angels ride, Allison's mother had said at seeing the photo layout in Cycle World. He had laughed at that, and not just because she didn't know her Harleys, also because she didn't see the nursery which wouldn't be built until well after his payments were completed. He walked back down for his jacket he had dropped, feeling easier now, and for good measure he put his ear once more to the metal control room. The clicking was louder this time, and followed by a humming sound as deep and resonant as a radio arm saw. From the top of the hill, he did a slow 360 degrees looking for ranch houses. Only sagebrush, barrel cacti, and more low hills, and the distant peaks of the Santa Rita Range stretched out in front of him, no doubt crawling with tarantulas, gila monsters, and western diamondbacks. He guesstimated 13 miles back to the nearest service station on the other side of I-10. A two- or three-hour hike in the approaching heat of noon, unless he could get over to 83 and hitch. Or maybe a driver would help him. Hey, buddy, can you help me lift my bike? It's out by an old Titan missile site where I just heard what sounds like a missile fueling itself. No. Better not to mention the sound in the silos. Just a cow. If he stuck with the cow, maybe the driver of that third or fourth car who saw him waving his arms like a maniac would stop, roll down the window a crack, and take pity. Otherwise, fat chance. He thought he could see it, too. Eighty-three like a thin ribbon of asphalt two miles beyond the dull gray behemoth rising from the sand. As he passed the thing, he threw a rock which clanged off the top and skidded into the sand on the other side. Then he cursed when he came to the edge of the clearing, meeting a low barbed wire fence. It was almost low enough to step over and seemed long rusted, but it had enough jagged curly cues to tear into his new leather chaps. He found another rock and was in the middle of trying to separate a strand of wire from one of the posts when he heard another kind of click behind them. And he jerked around to see the muzzle of a forty-five automatic staring him in the face. Can't read, Shines, the old geezer behind the gun said. Sons, he replied, his voice cracking. The old man was in his mid-seventies and had a pained look about his permanently wrinkled forehead. He wore baggy jeans, patched in places, and a Wrangler shirt rolled up above the elbow. A stain of sweat smiled at the armpit of the arm that held the automatic. You heard me, Shines like the one back there at. The old man turned to point back at the hill and stopped. Well, I'll be damned. They did it again. Did what? Josh asked, casually dropping his rock. Or maybe it was you did it. The forty-five lifted up from the vicinity of his crotch to his face again. You take down the chain with my sign on it. W what sign? Didn't see no damn sign. The old man's crow's feet became folds of prickly skin. Keep out, sign, he said. Means. Yeah, I know what it means, Josh told him, feeling some anger amid his frustration. But there was no sign, and I wrecked my bike over there, and I need help lifting it. Damn it. The old man looked him over for five long seconds, then lowered his pistol. Nice jacket, he said. He stuck out his other hand and held it out. 
Name's Carol Summers. This is my place now. They shook hands. Your place? Bought it for a retirement home three years ago. Went on vacation to see my son in Florida a month ago. And when I got back, somebody had stolen my sand. He pointed with the barrel of the forty-five. Used the dump truck, the bastards, and uncovered the top of the control room. It's high-grade stuff, that sand. Air Force chucked it in here back in the late sixties when they built this place. Kept the place cool as a rabbit's burrow, see? Or rattlesnakes, Josh thought. What about water and electricity? Got a storage tank on the ground fed by a well. And a generator, too. I burn candles mostly, though. Make my own. Actually, I bought two sides and used the other for a spare parts. One's a museum, you know, and the fourth was bought by some guy from New Jersey. Plans to turn it into a cafe. The lame duck, he's gonna call it. So where do you get in? There's no windows or doors. Kyle Summers laughed. <laughs> There's a reinforced tunnel on the other side of that hillock. My pickup's over there, too. Josh cleared his throat. <clears throat> Doesn't it get, I mean, boring? No, not really. It's a kick fixing things up. Got me a DVD, books, plenty of peace and quiet, and security, of course. No chance of some punk coming in holding a knife to my throat. No chance at all. <laughs> and if some raghead drops the biggin', I guess I'll live through it, won't I? With you? <laughs> The old man's laugh was big and booming, and it meant he knew he'd be dying a peaceful death in his bed below tons of concrete and steel while those in Tucson and around the airbase worried about crime and nuclear terror. So you're alone here, then? It was more of a statement than a question, but Kyle nodded anyway. <sighs> Wife's in Florida with the kid. Except he's no kid anymore. They ever been here? The old man looked up from his boot. Uh, we're not on speaking terms anymore. Josh shifted stance. You reckon you could give me a hand with my bike? I ran off the road to miss a cow and I can't lift it because it's pretty heavy. Old man Summers flexed a muscle. Sure, I reckon I can do that. I keep fit. You want to have a look-see at my setup first? I don't get many visitors. The tunnel from the iron outer doorway fifty yards behind the sand hill was darker than roof tar. Nothing to bump your head on, Kyle reassured him. I removed the rusted ends of the reinforcement bars and the unnecessary fixtures. Well, what did you do? Josh asked. I just told you. I... No, I mean, what did you retire from? Huh. 
I was an engineer, the old man explained. A mechanical engineer. They continued walking in the dark. You? I, uh, I repair air conditioners for a living. Oh, really? Maybe you can help me with mine, then. Josh's voice faltered, his white lie echoing hugely in the close, dark space. What I mean is those small units, window units. I don't know much about industrial models. When did you put it in? Recently. Didn't need it before. You'll have a look anyway, won't you? He said nothing as the old man opened the inner lock. A sliver of light shot out the crack and widened as the two-foot-thick steel door was pushed open. Watch your feet, Kyle warned. He looked down at a metal plate which served as a bridge over the threshold. A deep crack ran along the wall all the way around the circular room. Giant springs were mounted at four points connecting the floor platform of the room to the surrounding walls. On the platform sat an array of control consoles, two of which had operating monitors and blinking lights. Hey, you got it running. I expected... Josh paused, not knowing what he had expected. Layers of dust, 20 years old? Piles of Playboy magazines dating back to the beginning of the Cold War? He certainly hadn't expected a fully functioning control room set up like the Star Trek bridge, complete with assorted buzzing and clicking sounds. He half expected Spock to enter and proclaim it fascinating. Amazing, he concluded. But that sound in the background, what is that? Uh, that's the generator, Kyle replied. Don't like it to run too much, uses fuel. Mostly I use the candle like when I get up to take a piss and need to aim. He walked around his mock bridge like Kirk giving a tour to a visiting Klingon emissary. Those springs keep this room safe from shock waves. Handle anything but a direct hit. The monitors give readouts of system functions, temperature, humidity, that kind of thing, as well as silo observation. Josh touched one of the monitor screens. But there... there's a missile in there! Just a tape for effect. The old man flipped the switch. See, it's a television set this time. The price is right. And it was. <laughs> he laughed and flipped it again. An image of the clearing outside appeared. Here's how I knew you was out there. Got a camera hidden. Ran a cable through a fissure in the concrete below ground. It wasn't easy, believe me. I believe you. Now... About that air conditioner, you want to lend a hand? Then I'll help you with your bike. Great. Can I use your bathroom first, though? Have to, well, take a leak. Old man Summers grinned and pointed to another opening on the far side of the control room. Watch your feet. Down straight ahead, twenty yards or so. Josh stepped onto another metal plate and over the threshold into a second tunnel. 
Will I need a candle? He called back. Summers didn't answer, already engrossed at his monitors. He made his way up the narrow tunnel toward a glimmer of light at the end. The other building, he realized. The tunnel led to the rectangular structure he had seen half buried in sand outside. And sure enough, it opened up into a bedroom of sorts, with a single bare bulb in the center of a low stone ceiling supported by heavy iron pylons running vertically every six feet or so. The walls looked thick. Maybe they were 20 feet thick. It certainly felt cooler in here than in the control room, and the sound of the generator was almost completely absent. He walked around the bed, which was really no more than a cot, with its thin soiled mattress visible beneath a must sheet. On the far side of the room was the toilet, not married for sure. Beside the toilet was a shower stall, then a bookcase, a dresser with a toy gyroscope on it, and what looked like a closet. A framed 8x10 glossy photo of a shirtless young man on the Galleon Crawler tractor hung on the wall over the dresser. Behind the tractor in the photo were two large cement trucks with military insignia on them, and behind these stretched a familiar sawtooth shapes of the Santa Rita Mountains. He leaned closer for a better look. The man in the tractor held up one thumb and grinned. A bumper sticker atop the tractor's cowl read, Live Fast, Die Young. As he dribbled into the toilet bowl, careful of his aim, he stared back at the other door, hoping something in there might lend cheer to these otherwise bleak living quarters. Obviously, the old man spent more of his time elsewhere in the complex, or he would have put up wallpaper, added some silk flowers, anything. But maybe he just wanted to keep it looking like the military installation it once was, though. It was, after all, a time-consuming hobby, or obsession. He tried to imagine having such a place himself. What would Mother Stark say about that? He chuckled at the thought of telling her, Hey Edna, guess what? I bought me a missile bunker, and when the big one hits, you're gonna be outside without a key. No grandson for you to poison against me, no ma'am. Cause I got the power now. Damn if I don't. He zipped up and reached down to drop the toilet seat, but stopped and smiled instead. It wasn't right, of course, to be thinking such thoughts. Allison deserved a baby if she wanted one so bad. It was true the world was becoming an overcrowded hellhole, but maybe it wouldn't be so bad if they pulled together. Give peace a chance. Wasn't that their slogan back in 68? What was he afraid of? A second motorcycle wreck might decapitate him. Was a baby really so horrible? Before flushing, he decided to take a peek in that other door. The closet. Looking up the tunnel, he could see old Kyle busy at his consoles. Maybe switching between Jeopardy, Oprah, and the Home Shopping Network in hopes of a newscast predicting Russia's conquest of Israel within 48 hours. He slid the door open carefully, surprised by the size of what he thought was a closet. Beside the bent metal clothes rack was a sink, a table with a hot plate on it, and a larder stocked to the ceiling with canned goods. Cases of Hormel chili, no beans. Del Monte fruit cocktail, Campbell's split pea and ham soup, and a generic creamed corn. 
Next to the canned goods were cases of Kraft macaroni and cheese dinners, powdered milk, and a row of hamburger helper. The little helping hand with a smile across its palm as if to say have a nice day. All in all, enough to feed a platoon for a month. Beyond was a smaller card table with a battered game of solitaire laid out, half played. Klondike from the looks of it. Something was framed on the wall over the card table, but he couldn't see it clearly, so he turned on the overhead light and went in. It was a newspaper clipping. Lawsuit unsuccessful, the big print read. Then, Dr. Kyle Summers, an engineer for Davis Munson Systems Compliance Unit, failed in his attempt to sue the Veterans Administration over its refusal to take his son Patrick's case. Patrick Summers, Dr. Summers' only son, died of heart failure resulting from complications connected to Agent Orange disbursement during the Vietnam War. And it was thought at the time that the article continued, but he didn't. He ran back to the toilet, flushed it, and returned for only a moment longer. It was thought at the time that the defoliant would not have future toxic effects, and the VA in Tucson has so far failed to accept such cases from area veterans. The article was dated August 11, 1973, the Arizona Daily Star. Well, you piss poor now, <laughs> Dr. Summers asked, giving a laugh as he looked up from his flashing consoles. Yeah, guess so. Always have been, though. My bike, it's about the nicest thing I've ever owned. Is that right? He watched the old man flipping toggles and throwing levers, and then he wiped a thin sheen of sweat from his own forehead. Yep, I never had a son to play with. Not like you had. Never had a place as nice as this to play in, either. Uh, what exactly are you doing? Oh, I'm just firing up that new air conditioner I installed. Uh, give me a hand. Sure, what can I do? A thin Buddhist smile. Just go over to that console near the wall over there. See it? Uh, yeah. You will. Turn that red key that's... This one? That's the one. But wait a sec. At the count of three, okay? You're gonna help me lift my bike afterward, right? Your bike? Oh, sure. You think I can't? Think your old man's too old, do you? I didn't say... Steady now. Cross your fingers. One. He gripped the red key. The heat felt oppressive. Poor old geezer, he thought. Pretending his son's still alive, too. Locking himself up like this. Two. Plenty of bankrupt desperados out there to hide from. But if people only pulled together, helped each other out, it'd be all right. Three. After all, didn't one good turn deserve another? And that was A Helping Hand for the Harley Man by Jonathan Lowe. A good reminder that one hand washes the other, so sometimes it's best to keep your hands to yourself. A little about the author. Jonathan Lowe is the award-winning author of five novels on Amazon. 
He'd like to let you know about a new audiobook called Cat on a Cold Tin Roof, Between a Rockford and a Hard Place. It's a collection of unusual and thought-provoking stories dedicated to Harlan Ellison and Lee Child, and narrated by our very own Jeff Sturdivant. He's published widely in magazines and had over a dozen radio dramas produced for the CD's Tall Tales for the Road and Oscar's Hijack, both now out of print. His fervent hope is that his next ambulance driver doesn't take the scenic route. Your lips to God's ears, Mr. Lowe. Thanks, Jonathan. And do old Drew Blood a favor, would you? Subscribe to his podcast wherever you do your listening and leave him a five-star review and a kind word, even if you're listening on YouTube. To hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all the other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click Patrons in the upper menu. You'll find yourself at ChillinTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to their entire audio archive all ad-free and available to download or stream. Thank you for your time and for supporting our sponsors. When you support our sponsors, you support this show. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all the latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with them each and every week. Oh, and you can find Drew Blood on Facebook and Instagram. The Drew Blood's Dark Tales podcast is accepting submissions, friend. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on the show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, you'll get the full treatment, 10 bananas. Well, I'm afraid this is where we part ways, friend. At least till next week. So grab a drink for the road. And stay in your lane out there. You never know what those other weirdos are up to. Best to keep out of it. I'd like to give a big hello and a big thank you to my newest patrons. So Martin Siesto, Larry in the 50, Aurelian Ember Gardner, and Amber Rodriguez McLean. Thank y'all so much for becoming patrons. It really means a lot to me, y'all. And Chester wants me to tell y'all thanks as well. He's never eaten so good. He's actually getting kind of fat. Anyways, Martin Siesto, Blarian 50, Aurelian Ember Gardner, and Amber Rodriguez McLean. May the wind be at your backs, and may the road rise up to meet you. Let's do it again next week, shall we? Till then, y'all, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> Hasta luego, amigo. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly 
which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.